This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, um, actually, one of the great things about um, both teaching architecture, teaching architecture and urban design, and also this conference is that uh, within 24 hours, we can go from talking about um, property taxes and zoning law to the eschaton and sacramentality. <laughs> so, I want to talk about uh, eschatology, the city as eschatology. The city as eschatological and the city as sacramental. Um, of course, the um, uh, I would say the two dominant images of, of paradise uh, in, the, in the biblical tradition are heaven as a city and heaven as a banquet. So what I want to talk about, uh, yeah, is the city of God is eschatological, the city of God is sacramental, um, uh, and and by uh, eschatological expectation, I mean the city of God uh, as not yet, right? Uh, not yet here, and, and in talking about the city of God uh, sac sacramentally, the city of God here now. Uh, but I'm, I want to start with the um, sort of the excerpts from the two basic texts um, uh, in the Christian tradition that um, um, sort of give expression to this eschatological um, hope uh, and understanding. And so the first is um, well-known um, you know, passage uh, from the penultimate chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, and so forgive me for reading it, but it's, you know, it's, just, it, it's, always, it's always good to hear it, I think, uh, and to read it aloud. Um, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. <clears throat> he who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." And in the other, um, actually, brief passages are from um, St. Augustine, uh, from the City of God, in which he characterizes uh, and juxtaposes the City of God and the City of Man, uh, emphasizing the point that Christians have a dual citizenship, um, uh, always uh, part of the City of Man, but, but with a primary allegiance to the City of God. And he writes um, that two cities have been formed by two loves, 
the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. But later, I want to say, I think it's in book 17, um, he, he, he sort of tempers that a little bit in the sense of recognizing that they're not completely um, separate uh, or, or as separate as, as the passage I just read um, um, may suggest. Um, and he writes that the heavenly city then, while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens out of all nations and gathers together a society of pilgrims of all languages, not scrupling about diversities in the manners, laws, and institutions whereby earthly peace is secured and maintained, but recognizing that however various these are, they all tend to one and the same end of earthly peace. The heavenly city, therefore, is so far from rescinding and abolishing these diversities that it even preserves and adopts them, so long only as no hindrance to the worship of the one supreme and true, true God is thus introduced. Even the heavenly city, therefore, while in its state of pilgrimage, avails itself of the peace of earth, and so far as it can, without injuring faith and godliness, desires and maintains a common agreement regarding the acquisition of the necessities of life and makes this earthly peace bear upon the peace of heaven. In its pilgrim state, the heavenly city possesses this heavenly peace by faith, and by this faith, it lives righteously when it refers to the attainment of that peace, every good action towards God and man, for the life of the city is a social life. So I want to talk about um, a little bit, uh, a gloss on these um, uh, on these two passages, and it's really not my gloss. It's it's uh, it's the gloss of uh, a colleague of mine um, at Notre Dame in the theology department, Francesca Murphy, uh, who wrote this really uh, interesting essay that I that I had asked you to read. Which, which I mean, uh, it, it's it's it, it certainly grabbed my attention uh, and the themes that she was talking about. I'm I'm not qualified uh, to give um, exegesis on that, um, but I just I want to uh, touch upon uh, the thesis. I thought was really quite. Uh, it's one to which I'm quite um, sympathetic, prima facie, from from uh, from her account. But she's writing about Revelation as the uh, asking the question: Is the Book of Revelation the key to biblical interpretation? And she um, she writes the following, and she and she makes the point that uh, we're we're accustomed to think of Johannine, uh, you know, the Johannine um, Gospel, right? Go the Gospel of John as as uh, shaping uh, uh, theological thinking uh, in in the in the church. But she's she's um, uh, making a case also for uh, for the the apocalypse, right? The uh, the revelation of Saint John. So so she says, I, I want to make use of this paper to propose lightheartedly, though not in jest, the priority of the Book of Revelation. It does not mean chronological priority. I mean the thematic and structural priority of Revelation, both for understanding the Scriptures and for appreciating the nature of theology within the New Testament corpus. John the theologian best explicates the nature of theology. Although contending for the priority of John's gospel is deeply in keeping with the theological tradition, the book of Revelation has never been the central driving force of mainstream Western or Eastern theological tradition. The reason for this was precisely, on the one hand, the proclivity of sections of the faithful to take the text literally, and on the other, the determination of bishops and their ever-eager handymen to stamp out the ensuing end-of-the-world fervor. In the 5th century, 
Jerome put his finger on the problem of the book of Revelation. To follow Irenaeus and, quote, to take the text literally is to Judaize, whereas to take the text alleg allegorically has no foothold in the tradition. At that juncture, allegorical reading of a text which had barely got its boots inside the canon of scripture, referring to Revelation, one of the last books to make it, had no foothold in the theological tradition. This, this in the, in, in, when Irenaeus in the, in the fifth century. Augustine changed all that with his magnificent allegorizing philosophy of history in the city of God. The twin cities of the biblical text become the two cities whose intermingling is the motor of the human story. In the centuries that immediately followed, Augustine's interpretation influenced the theological interpretation of Revelation. The city of God is perhaps too magnificent to generate successors. In any case, philosophy of history of that kind had no take-up in the centuries in which the Roman Empire fell into disrepair. Even when it regrouped under Charlemagne um, in the ninth century, uh, an admirer of Augustine's work, it is, it's only uh, with the first heterodox, I'm sorry, even when it regrouped under Charlemagne, an admirer of Augustine's work, it's only with the first heterodox interpretations of Revelation in the late 11th century that the book of Revelation once again becomes the beacon for a theology of history. Um, now, the reason I'm taking the time to, to actually read all this and go through it is because, uh, and there's some more here that I'm going to, um, one, one more slide of this, um, is that some of the names that she mentioned, I mean, the book of Revelation becomes very important as an engine uh, for um, uh, sort of heterodoxy and uh, um, um, schism in the church and um, you know, apocalyptic, uh, you know, millennialist expectations that also in, historically become secularized and get expressed in architecture uh, in the modern era. So, um, so writing about this late, um, um, this late uh, 11th century uh, uh, enthusiasm, right, for the book of Revelation, she, she mentions uh, Joachim of Fiore. And I have to say, um, when I studied church history uh, long, long ago uh, in the medieval course, I remember reading about uh, Joachim of, of Fiore and, um, and I thinking, oh, you know, that was interesting. That's interesting. But it didn't really, I, I didn't have enough information to kind of make connections. And then when I was in architecture school, um, uh, one of the foremost architectural theorists of his generation, uh, when he uh, learned that I had studied some church history. He'll say, well, t tell me what you think about Joachim of Fiora. And I had nothing to say about Joachim of Fiora, but, but he, he, uh, you know, he was correct. I mean, he, he was making connections that I was not making. Um, and so it was, it was very interesting that um, uh, uh, Professor Murphy is, is um, you know, bringing them up here as well. So she says, with, she writes that with Joachim of Fiora, uh, revelation is taken literally and predictively for the first time in half a millennium. His readings in Revelation will influence several generations of heterodox Franciscans. A sporadic paper trail of literal and predictive readings of Revelation can be laid from heterodox Franciscans to the Anabaptists to the Anabaptists. Luther and Calvin are compelled to persuade their followers to desist from literalist readings of Revelation by marginalizing the book in much the same way the early church bishops had done. Modern scholars have argued that subversive use of the apocalypse is a subtext to modern German idealism, uh, and thus too much, and thus to much uh, contemporary continental philosophy. And then she, she, her, her payoff says theology has to choose. 
On the one hand, it can permit the book of Revelation, and she's writing, she's writing this as an Orthodox Catholic, she says Catholic theology has to choose. On the one hand, it can permit the book of Revelation to exist as a side current that perennially subverts theology, even whilst diverting much of its charismatic force into uncreative cultist forms of Christianity. These subcurrents will be dealt with by silencing them if they occur within the church, or by ignoring them when they occur outside its walls. This is an odd way to interpret Revelation 8.1, which I had to look up and I'm putting in here for, uh, first for my benefit and now for yours. And she quotes Revelation, or she doesn't quote it, but she refers to it. But Revelation 8.1 is the passage that says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Um, so this is, this is an odd way to interpret Revelation 8.1, but not an infrequent way. Or theology can give, uh, the alternative is theology can give genuine and authentic response or respect to the theological priority of the apocalypse. In what follows, the body of her article, I will tell you how to recognize a theology which derives its pattern and form from the book of Revelation. I will mention seven features of such a theology, and she writes about that it will be, it'll be visionary, it'll be musical, it'll be symbolic poetic, it'll be typological, it'll involve witnessing, uh, it will be wrathful. There will be uh, a wrath of God, right, that gets, gets expressed. And it will be um, comedic, uh, ultimately. It will be comedic. And the last two um, little sort of um, uh, bracketed uh, notes, these are notes to myself of, of things that I've read um, uh, that made a deep impression upon me that, uh, uh, you know, especially, especially germane to the idea of the apocalypse as both, as both wrathful and comedic. So um, in this tradition of uh, apocalyptic thinking, uh, it give, when I went to architecture school, uh, one of the things that um, uh, struck me um, fairly early on is there's a lot of discussion about utopias, right? That architects, um, there's, there's been a lot of uh, utopian thinking uh, among architects, really certainly dating from the Renaissance uh, especially so um, uh, um, uh, with the rise of modernism. Um, and the, um, uh, and again, Colin Rowe, who's actually the, the architectural theorist that I had uh, referred to earlier, uh, not by name, um, wrote a book uh, uh, called Collage City in which the first couple of chapters, which again, I, I, I could easily have assigned for this because uh, they're very they're germane. But uh, the first couple of chapters sort of trace uh, the difference, where they trace the, uh, the rise of modernism in contradistinction to uh, what he called the classical humanist uh, utopia. And, I'll, and so I'm going to talk about these in what follows. Um, uh, but there's, the, there's the, the classical humanist utopia, there's the, the modernist utopia, and there's the kind of hyper-modern uh, absence of utopia, um, a lack of any kind of, of ideal. So I'm going to uh, move to this. So um, so I want to talk about two utopias and their hypermodern successor. Oh, and what Colin Rowe says, he, he, in tracing the, the origins of utopian thinking in Renaissance and post-Renaissance architecture, he characterizes it as, um, let's see, the, the Timaeus um, heated up by the Book of Revelation or um, uh, the New Jerusalem cooled down by, you know, by some, something else. But, it, but he, he's making references to both uh, the you know, the, the, the classical Greek origins of, of utopian urban thinking, but also specifically to the book of Revelation uh, and the idea of the New Jerusalem. So 
I want to I want to start by talking about what I call Bess's first law of architecture, um, um, which is that all architecture symbolizes power um, and aspires to legitimate authority. And I'm using aspires as a as a synecdoche, right? Because architecture doesn't doesn't architecture itself doesn't aspire, but its makers aspire. Um, so all architecture symbolizes power and aspires to legitimate authority. Legitimate authority, I want to characterize as power wed to moral virtue in service to a shared ideal. Um, in classical humanist architecture and urbanism, it's the aspiration to unite beauty with goodness and truth. Uh, it has a presumption um, uh, of, of, well, I would say that the traditional cultures uh, and their architecture and urbanism operate with, a, with implicitly, uh, well, at least implicitly, if not also explicitly, uh, with uh, ideas of um, an idea of metaphysical realism, um, which uh, you know we've talked about before, is that reality is real, that we can know it, and we flourish uh, when we accord with it. So, um, in terms of the ideals of classical humanist, modernist, and hypermodernist, postmodern modernist urbanism, um, just a, a quick kind of thumbnail sketch of that. So, classical humanist ideals—it's a hierarchical spatial realm. I would say this is the characteristic of the physical form of, of the cities and its relationship to their respective ideals. That the classical humanist ideal um, is embodied uh, in a hierarchical spatial realm. Uh, it is microcosmic and participatory. That's, that is to say it's, it's implicitly sacramental, sometimes explicitly. It's, uh, it's, and, and that the, the ideal, right, the, the utopian ideal, is, is teleological uh, and it's transcendent, right? And so it has, uh, it has affinities um, with, with sacred ideals in these pre-modern pre -modern cultures. Um, modernist, um, the modernist utopia is a non-hierarchical and anti-spatial realm. It's a necessary and symbolic material representation of its historical moment. Uh, and, and it is, um, it has a teleological ideal, but that teleological ideal is imminent. Um, uh, and it, it has, um, in that respect, it has certain affinities with Marxism. Um, and uh, I would, I would, and I've characterized it and would characterize it as the anti-classical humanist city in, in precisely these ways, in, in that Marxism is often understood as a kind of uh, Christian heresy. Right, it's it's a it's a teleological progressive, or I should say, a teleological view of history, um, but it is it's imminent, it's materialist, uh, denies the transcendent altogether, um, and uh, in in the same way, uh, I want to I want to characterize again, uh, modernism in architecture was to the classical humanist tradition in architecture and urbanism, um, what the French Revolution was to the ancient regime. Um, and so in talking about the modernist utopia as the anti-classical humanist city, um, again, I think it's, uh, what's of interest is that it, it actually, uh, it has a similar teleological structure, but, but, um, but it, was, it, was, um, uh, it was the opposite in terms of its, its metaphysical assumptions. And then there's the post-hypermodernist uh, condition that we're in, which is a, the non-hierarchical, non, the, the spatial features of which are a non-hierarchical realm of junk space, no transcendent order, no legitimate authority, non-teleological. Um, the symbolic content is money, power, 
And uh, a phrase from Philip Reef that I've always just loved from the Triumph of the Therapeutic, permission to live an experimental life. That's, that's the authoritative, that, that's the legitimate authority that, that uh, hypermodernist architecture, I think, uh, represents and embodies, permission to live an experimental life. And being that way is thus both anti-classical humanist and anti-modernist. Um, it's an anti-sacred and anti-civic culture that's, that's, um, that, that makes the kind of hypermodernist uh, architecture and urbanism that's, that's being made today. So therefore, I want to posit uh, that it's not uh, uh, that, that, that what architects think of as postmodernism or POMO, which is this kind of 15 or 20 year period in the, in the, in the mid 70s until 1990 or 1970, 1990 or so. Um, uh, Hypermodernists today characterize that as a transitional period from original modernism to contemporary modernism. But my argument is, is that the moder it's modernism itself that's the transition. And the transition is from the classical humanist tradition to our hypermodern condition. And, and modernity, or I should say modernism, um, modernist architecture and urbanism itself is the transitional phenomenon. So I want to show just um, sort of examples of uh, each of these three traditions, although uh, it's not a balanced view. Uh, right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna spend uh, uh, if I've got a, maybe a dozen, twelve or fifteen slides. Um, the first ten to thirteen are gonna be of the Ghent altar piece, and, and then I'll have one for modernism and one for hypermodernism. <laughs> so just just to warn you. Um, but um, so what what we're looking at here, this this sort of these uh, I'm calling them icons of classical humanist urbanism, clockwise from the bottom left. Uh, the bottom left is a detail from the Ghent altar piece. Uh, depicting paradise as, uh, a, as a New Eden and New Jerusalem. Um, in the upper left is an image uh, of Rome. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a 1575 image of Rome, so it's a late 16th century image of Rome, that is depicted as her seven pilgrimage churches, right? Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting kind of ideogram, sort of understanding, uh, you know, what, understanding what the city of Rome is. The city of Rome is, you know, is it's a pilgrimage city. Right, and so so what are depicted are the are the important churches, and then uh, from the late 19th and early 20th century in the upper right, uh, the the main court of honor at the World's Columbian Exposition uh, of 1893 uh, from Chicago, um, which uh, really kicked off in earnest uh, what became the American City Beautiful movement uh, that lasted until about 1940, um, uh, and which again resulted in. Um, um, if, you, if you go to almost any, uh, any large to medium-sized city and find some classical composition of, of buildings, um, it's likely that they were built uh, between, between you know, 1895 and, and 1940. And then um, related to the, to the um, Columbian Exposition is the, an iconic image from uh, Daniel Burnham's plan of Chicago uh, uh, from 1909 for a proposed uh, city hall and, and plaza. Um, which, and it's interesting because the plan of Chicago um, really is in some ways the most important, and I would argue um, maybe the most interesting document to come out of the, the City Beautiful movement. And it was adopted by the city, but it never got built out. There's only certain features of it that got, uh, that got adopted, mainly the turning the lakefront uh, into a, the entire lakefront of the city of Chicago into, into public parks, and also the creation of um, forest preserves uh, uh, throughout metropolitan Chicago. But uh, other than that, it really um, uh, it, it, it ran out of steam and, and the depression and then the, and then modernism um, kind of knocked it out. 
I'll come back to that. I hope to have time to come back to that. Um, but uh, it was very influential with respect to other uh, buildings in other places. So that, for example, um, the plan of Chicago was, was uh, Burnham was the author and the co-author and, and designer was uh, Edward Bennett. And um, in Pasadena, California, uh, in the early 20s, Edward Bennett, after Burnham had died, Edward Bennett did a city beautiful plan, if any of you know Pasadena, but it's got this axis and cross axis and a big city hall, big dome city hall that is, looks very much like the, like the Burnham plan. And it's, there were, there were um, dozens, if not scores, uh, of those kinds of, of um, uh, urban building uh, ensembles that were, that were built across the country after, uh, after the plan of Chicago. So I want to talk about the Ghent altarpiece um, briefly, um, uh, which uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed about the conference is, um, is, is um, the opportunity to, to ponder um, some, you know, some good contemporary sacred art um, and the idea of um, the expression taking place, you know, in the moment in which we, we find ourselves, right? That, that we, can't, we can't not um, um, occupy our time uh, and, and uh, reflect in some ways the, and embody the, the sensibilities of our time. But um, there is this... Uh, uh, Iconic, uh, astonishing uh, work of art. How many of you know the Ghent altarpiece? How many? Any, any of you seen it? Okay, good for you. Okay, what'd you think? <laughs> what'd you think? Oh, it was beautiful. I spent easily forty-five minutes just staring at it. I'm just like I'm looking at it and contemplating it. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's yes, yeah. It's that kind of thing. So I I I would take students every year, graduate urban design students every year to uh, Belgium for a week, and we would. We always took a day trip to Ghent uh, to see the, the Ghent altarpiece, and it is—it's a—it's a stunning thing. Uh, it will—you know—you stand next to it, and then every once in a while, and if you're listening to the account of it, which is one of those things that—that that, you know, I mean, something you don't need the account. The, the Ghent altarpiece is sufficiently complex that you do, but you—you know—you hear something, and and you're just kind of knocked backwards as you're, as you're looking. Anyway, so closed, it looks like this. It, it took. This is a this is a panel when when opened. It's I think like 15 feet uh, high by 22 feet wide. And uh, something like that, and it took 18 years to paint, uh, and it's got it's got um, I think 24 panels, um, one two three four. You know, there's there's uh, 12 on the inside and 12 on the outside. Uh, so this is what it looks like when it's closed, um, and, and it's a it's what it, it's it's a depiction of salvation history uh, is the only way to to describe it. And so on the on the closed uh, when it's closed, uh, you're seeing uh, the Annunciation uh, in the you know the the, the second top middle, uh, you know, the top register, top middle register, I guess. And then below it are uh, two um, uh, images of St. John, St. John the Baptist and St. John the, the uh, Evangelist, uh, because it was originally in St. John's Cathedral, which has since been renamed St. Bavo. Um, and then the, uh, on the lower left and the lower right are the patrons um, of it. And then above there are prophets, two prophets and two civils that were forecasting the, or predicting the birth of, of Christ. But when it opens up, it opens up like this. Um, and, um, and so you've got Adam, uh, Adam portrayed on the left, Eve portrayed on the upper right. Uh, above Adam uh, are Cain and Abel making their um, offerings. And on the upper, I'm sorry, upper left, Cain and Abel making their, their offerings. And on the upper right, uh, Cain uh, killing Abel. Um, and then um, what you've got um, uh, below and above, what's below is a is a depiction of paradise, uh, and it's paradise depicted as um, 
both a city and a garden and the assembly of the faithful. And, and they're sort of representative, um, uh, uh, um, representative groups of the, of the faithful who, who will be in paradise. And then in the register above, you've got this angelic, uh, or I should say heavenly, um, uh, realm uh, of, of choral singers on the left and musicians on the, on the right. And then you've got um, what iconographically looks similar to the convention of depicting Christ uh, you know, in, uh, in such tableaus, these triptychs where you've got Mary, uh, Mary to the left, John the Baptist to the right, and Christ in the center. Except that this, well, we'll see as we go, because I'm going I'm to uh, enlarge the details. Um, so there's some question about you know, some ambiguity about who this is. Uh, and, and I think most scholars tend to think that the, the ambiguity is, is, um, is intentional. Is it, is it Christ, is it the risen Christ, or is it God the Father? And the reason that, um, and, and, you, well, and this iconographic convention, uh, when you have Mary on the left and John the Baptist on the, on the right, it's, it's always a depiction of the risen Christ. And he's, you, know, you, can, you can tell it's the risen Christ by the presence of the wounds and the hands. Um, or even, you know, it's also you know, common to crucifixion scenes. Those, those marks are absent, right, in the, in the figure depicted in the center. So some ambiguity about the, whether the, you know, the, the person in the, in the center, um, um, God Almighty, is being depicted as God the Father or, or uh, the risen Christ. And, um, and, and I, I think that the, um, there's some scholarly opinion, if not consensus, that, that this is an intentional thing. Um, but anyway, what's um, I think the thing that's so striking about it, if you, uh, you know, I mean, from going to Belgium um, uh, a number of years, uh, uh, this this being painted between 1418 and 1432, it antedates uh, a group that was known as the Flemish primitives, uh, and the Fle Flemish primitives um, were were painting you know throughout the 14th or throughout the 15th century, and they sort of the, the, uh, our art historians trace their the development of their work, uh, you know, leading up to um, um, Durer uh, and some of the you know, Renaissance realists, and and of course um, uh, the whole tradition of painting in Flanders. If you um, uh, it, uh, you you have this increasing re realism up. To, I'm not a scholar of this, but you know, through um, through um, uh, well through Rembrandt, but through um, uh, Rubens uh, in in Antwerp. Um, but when you go and look very closely at those paintings, I mean, you're, you're looking at a very different style of painting uh, in Rubens than what you get here. That I've never really, it took me a long time to really understand what was going on here because um, this is hyper realistic uh, in its detail. It's unprecedented, as far as I know, in the history of, of Christian art. And if you, if you sort of look at, that, at this with that in mind and look at the, look at the detail, right? Uh, in the you know in the folds and the brocades and the in the lettering uh, in the jewels on Mary's crown in her robe um, uh, and in the the backdrop of the you know of of the you know of, of God Almighty um, and the scepter that you know the, the the details in the crystal scepter uh, the, you can't see them here but the details in God's fingernails right if you can imagine God's fingernails. Um, it's 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 really quite extraordinary, and I never quite understood because it's so far in advance of the Flemish primitives. I never really understood, and still don't really, where that came from. But but the the best explanation that I've heard about um, why this particular uh, painting is unique in having these characteristics. It was also the first 
it was the first to use oil painting uh, in Flanders. Uh, it was the first to use um, um, you know, the, 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 the realism in the depiction of, of nature and the built environment. Uh, there's something like you know, 43 identifiable species of plant, identifiable species of plant that are depicted in the garden. Um, as you'll see, the skyline bears a resemblance to what's, what's going on uh, in the city of Ghent. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, the, and someone has just you know, come out, they've, re they've recently restored it and they've, and they've determined that, the, uh, that, that everything down to the, the light that's refracted through the jewels that are lying on the ground are, are, is correct. Um, so it's really an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary, maybe unprecedented piece of, uh, of composition in the first part of, of the 15th century. And what followed it, there was nothing like it that, that followed it. And the only explanation really is that, um, uh, well, first of all, that, that, that Hubert van Eyck and Jan van Eyck were brothers and, and were geniuses. But Hubert is supposedly, um, Hubert died. No, not much is known about Hubert, but he died while this was being painted. And, and Jan uh, finished it. And so it's, you know, it's credited to both Hubert and, and Jan van Eyck. And Jan van Eyck went on to have a, a very successful painting career as a, as a portrait painter, as a, as a miniaturist. So if you see his other works, um, they're about this big, right? And, and, they, um, uh, and they're you know, portraits of wealthy, um, you know, wealthy um, Flemish um, merchants and their, and their wives. Um, but but uh, you know, exquisite in its detail, and, and, but the Ghent altarpiece is that level of detail on this huge, uh, you know, uh, not canvas, but this huge, um, wooden um, um, frame. And so, um, so, you know, I don't know how long it took to paint the Sistine Chapel, but I don't think it took 14 years. Um, but it took 14 years to do um, the Ghent altarpiece. So this is, a, again, so look at the detail in the, in the, in the robe of the, uh, of the organist. Um, so that's, so, so that's the up, I'm sorry, that's, yeah, that's the, that was the upper register. So this is the lower register with paradise depicted as city and garden, um, in which uh, the central piece uh, or the central panel um, of the lower register is, is called the mystic adoration of the lamb. Um, and so what you have uh, in this is a gathering of, uh, of the faithful. In the foreground is the, the fountain of life. There are jewels at the bottom, at the, you know, at the center of it uh, is the, the lamb, of, is Christ depicted as the lamb of God uh, on the altar. Um, um, with well, with blood, you know, uh, flowing from his heart, you know, into the into the communion cup, and the angelic hosts um, uh, offering incense and praise, um, and uh, and the the scene is lit by the Holy Spirit, um, who's at the top uh, of the of the painting, and so you get, I think, the gathering on the right are all are the apostles and martyrs. Uh, on the upper right are the holy holy women, and the on the upper left um, are the. Um, uh, the clergy, uh, you know, um, faithful, uh, the clergy of the church, and on the lower right are the, um, are the faithful, including uh, the righteous Gentiles who are, who are non-Christians. Um, so, and in the background is this, is the city skyline, uh, the skyline of the New Jerusalem. So this is the detail. Now, I don't, I, I realize that I forgot to do this. They, 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 as I said, they restored it in the last five or, five or ten years, but they finally got around. The last one that they restored was the central panel, and uh, the, the mystic adoration of the lamb. And in doing it, when they, they, they removed and discovered the, um, that the face of the lamb, as depicted, 
uh, actually, the, in this, the eyes are kind of to the side. And when they, when they restored it, they found that the eyes were looking directly at, you know, at, at the viewer, right? At the, at, at the perceiver. So that, so that the, it, the, it was a much more humanoid uh, um, depiction, right, of, of the eyes. And you can look this up, and, and they have these little things that go back and forth showing, you know, what, what it looked like before the restoration, what it looked, and what it looked like originally. It's quite, quite striking. It, it, freaked, it really freaked a lot of particularly secular um, art historians out. <laughs> um, what, why did they do that? <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> Think about what it is. So, anyway, so this is a detail um, showing the, the skyline um, and um, uh, further detail of, of the skyline of the, um, of the New Jerusalem. Um, and, and with a point to remember um, that, that there are no churches in the New Jerusalem, right? So these are all, these are all towers, right? They, they symbolize something other than the church, right? It, it's, it, so there's something about the city itself that as, uh, as a kind of emblem of the goodness of belonging, right? Of, of communal belonging and the, and the, the form that it takes, um, the form that human communities take uh, in, in a resilient and beautiful cities. Um, in the same way that the garden uh, can be taken as a kind of uh, representation of, of the goodness of, of human, uh, human freedom and delight and uh, in nature. Um, so this is, um, this is the contemporary skyline on the right and um, the, the skyline of the, of the New Jerusalem uh, in the Ghent altarpiece on the left. And then, so a very different, you know, kind of uh, metaphysical sensibility and utopian sensibility than that we see in, the, in modernism, right? Where the, 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 the utopian ideal, the telos of modernist ideology, the city to come, right, is, is understood as entirely secular. Uh, and it is, it's a secular eschaton, it, whereas the, and it's, th these are images from the La Ville Reduce, the Radiant City, um, uh, which was Le Corbusier's um, ideal city project. Um, and the, um, I, I think that the fundamental difference in the two understandings of, of the utopia, right, is that, is that the sensibility in the Ghent altarpiece, the way it informs actual architecture and city making, right, is that uh, it was a utopian ideal an, um, of, of, the city, of a city to come that was transcendent, right? It was an informing idea, and there was never any um, expectation that it could be fully realized in history. Right, that, and so at best you were making pieces of it. Right, you were you were making smaller interventions at the scale of a square, or the you know the scale uh, or, or the interior of a church, that that was um, uh, a depiction of heaven to some extent. And I'll, I'll and I'll I'll come back to this the, the idea that it was participating right in this transcendent ideal in a, in a sacramental kind of way, an implicitly sacramental kind of way. Um, but there, it was not a political project, right? It was not to be realized fully, fully in history. In contrast, the the the, uh, the utopia of of uh, modernism and the telos of modernism was it was an entirely imminent uh, political project, uh, and so its natural affinities were, you know, uh, uh, you know, and of its time were with with Marxism uh, and the expectation of the uh, the establishment of. Uh, of a utopian uh, condition in history. 
and that was understood entirely in, in materialist terms. And this is this is uh, implicitly this is one image of the kind of form um, that that would take. So what that, uh, as we've discussed um, earlier in the week, um, is that the the uh, is that modernism, because it's Utopia was imminent and, and essentially unrealizable um, in the way that it was articulated. Uh, the frustration with that um, has, has led many architects and maybe the culture of architecture, the larger culture of architecture, to sort of give up on this teleological, um, any kind of teleological ambition. And so the, the characteristic, the, 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 the form of the uh, of the ideal city uh, or the, the anti-ideal city um, that I've indicated that I, I think is captured so well in the Financial Times um, advertisement that um, the, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it's that and a, condition of, and a condition of junk space, right? Um, that is, um, uh, it symbolizes global capital, um, it, uh, but the reality on the ground uh, uh, is, a, is, a, is a, actually a harsh one. Um, and and so uh, it's non-teleological, and that seems to be where you know much of the profession and much of the you know um, the, the 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 state of the building industry and the state of our cities um, seems to be seems to be directed. Um, so again, this this image. So um, so there's this historical movement, but I, but I, I want to tie it back right to this this idea of. Uh, Eschatological expectation and how that notion devolves, right? In or, you know, in modernity uh, and into to hyper modernity, um, but um, how it's um, you know it's still very much a part of the Christian. It's it, as, and as Francesca Murphy um, argues, uh, it, it not only is um, central to the you know the, the Christian theological vision, but it it should be it could be even more so. Um, so I want to talk uh, now about, uh, uh, if, if we talk about uh, the city of God as eschatological, uh, that it, it represents the kind of not yet. It represents the end of history that has not come, but that is coming. It's the, you know, we seek the city that is to come. Um, there's this other aspect of um, Christian, uh, Catholic Christian understanding um, about the nature of reality that, um, that suggests uh, what I call a, a sacramental sensibility um, with, with respect to cities. And so if the eschatological expectation is the city to come, the sacramental sensibility is the sense of the city of God here now. Um, and I want to I wanna make reference to um, this book, uh, this relatively recent book, I think it was just published last year, by um, a, a, an, unexpected, uh, an unexpected ally uh, who um, uh, David Wang is a... Uh, uh, now a professor emeritus. I don't think he could publish this before he uh, became an emeritus. Um, but he's, a, uh, he's of Chinese descent, an evangelical Protestant, um, uh, you know, and who has retired recently from Washington State University and had never written anything remotely like this. Uh, I should say he'd written one thing remotely like it because he had written a book about Chinese philosophy um, and architecture. But uh, other than that, it was all kind of and I should say, so evangelical Protestant modernist, um, and uh, who is uh, having second thoughts, um, uh, and and um, and so he wrote this book, Architecture and Sacrament. And the way that I found out about it was I was asked to give it. Uh, from the, the, he had submitted to, submitted it to a publisher for review, 
and they sent me a note asking me to review it to see what I thought about it. And, and I got it, and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll look at it. Uh, and I wasn't reviewing the whole book. I was just reviewing chapters and introduction. In fact, I sent you the introduction. That's what I had you read. But um, I remember going through it, and I looked first at his profile and his background, and, and as I was reading it, I was thinking, ah, you know, this does, this does sound that promising. And then I actually, I read the actual introduction, and I was just kind of stunned. You know, it was, just, it was, it was totally unexpected. And, uh, and so I actually began a correspondence with him, and, and the book has since been published, and um, I should probably review it. But uh, it's, it's not a perfect book, but it's, it's, so, it's so enormously suggestive. If you know anything at all about the state of contemporary architectural theory. There's nothing like this um, that's out there um, uh, you know, in, uh, in the world of architectural theory. So he writes in the, uh, um, about, architectural, about contemporary architectural theory, you have to understand that everything is for 30 or 40 or 50 years has been understood in terms of critical theory, right? Everybody's got a critical theory. So, so, he, so the title of the book is Architecture and Sacrament, A Critical Theory. And I, you know, I love that, right? He's sort of taking, taking it uh, back to, the, uh, to his, um, uh, you know, his, his compadres uh, doing architectural theory. But in this, in this uh, um, draft opening chapter, which actually the book itself is slightly different, but I, I, like, I like the first draft better, so I, that's the one that I sent. Um, but he says, um, he says um, he's writing, he's defining his terms, uh, and, he's, and he's acknowledging kind of his lack of, you know, cultural preparedness to do this, but then he says, you know, that he's really, he's consulting Catholic and Orthodox theologians, right, about, about uh, aesthetics and sacramentality, and, and, and it's really just to kind of feed this intuition that he has. But so the, these are just like four um, kind of money paragraphs. He says... He says, the logic of sacramentum entails a smaller party participating in a much larger reality. And he traces the etymology of the word, that it goes back to, the, to uh, it was the oath that a Roman soldier would take to bind himself to the, uh, you know, to the, to the empire, right, as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as, as part of the, the Roman legion. So... Uh, uh, the logic of sacramentum entails a smaller party participating in a much larger reality. By participating via sacramentum, the individual receives the benefits of the larger reality of which he or she becomes a part. Participation is therefore an important aspect of sacramentum. Just as modern life has largely lost comprehension of sacramentum, the modern mind has difficulty grasping participation in the sense meant here. We moderns are generally content with representation, which postmodernists characterize as impossible. And if you recall, even in that chapter, uh, and he, he does it much more so when he gets into the book, um, he, and I, I admire his patience. I just uh, he goes through two or three chapters where he's cataloging architectural theory and the conclusions about why that why architectural theorists conclude that we can't really know anything about anything, and it's all, the whole skeptical, uh, critical theory thing. Um, so, uh, so he addresses all that, but then basically says, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, he says, it was once the precise burden of architecture to capture transcendent truths in physical forms. It is now difficult to imagine what this outlook was like as experienced on the ground in situ. These commitments to expressing transcendent truths in physical forms did not involve a representational agenda. So he's saying he... Everyone else is concerned about represent representation and its arbitrariness, and hence its impossibility. 
uh, and he says, well, that's not, that's not what um, pre-modern architects were doing. Uh, they, what they were doing involved a participatory agenda, and that's what he's particularly interested in. He says, it was once common practice for persons of high social standing to situate their tombs inside the cathedral. Why? It was not because the cathedral represented heaven. It was because the cathedral was heaven, sacramentally speaking. This participatory dimension is what has been lost in current architectural theory. Consider this. It's no accident that parallel to the emergence of the postmodern movements is also the emergence of angst over having lost sense of place. In earlier times, when participatory potential enlivened design thinking and making, sense of place, or its close cousin, sense of community, was present. No one wondered uh, where these commodities went. But now architectural theorists seem to have realized that somewhere along the road to pure relativity, oops, where did sense of community go? <laughs> Likewise, the impetus to conserve nature, captured by the general but elusive moniker sustainable design, is curiously devoid of wonder and amazement over the mysterious organicism of the very nature it aims to conserve. For all of its widespread momentum, sustainable design these days largely reduces to the numerical calculus of a lead spreadsheet. And those of you who are not acquainted with um, lead uh, criteria, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a kind of technocratic checklist of things that architects have to do to certify that their buildings are green buildings. Um, it's, it's, it's quite um, disjointed. Um, the literature addressing architecture through a Christian theological lens is largely separate from the architecture theory literature currently circulating in academia and practice. This is probably due to today's default assumption that religion does not mix with public life, a cultural barrier to comprehending current architectural issues that prevents the theoretical material on both sides of the divide from enriching each other. And this is my favorite line in the whole, in the whole introduction. But what if there's no separation between Christian theology and architectural theory? <laughs> How can this interdisciplinary overlay shed light on issues in current architectural theory? Sacramentum is the point of intersection between, between these two domains. So um, uh, actually, uh, uh, since we were talking movies, th this, this wound up in here. This is something that uh, in my classes, we, we, uh, in one of my theory seminars, we watch a um, different movie every week. But, but we, we always end up with Babette's Feast. Uh, because uh, how many of you have seen Babette's Feast? Yeah, so a number of you. Anyway, um, so I'm, I'm characterizing it as an eschatological, sacramental Christian comedy. Um, which, and Christian comedy may be redundant um, uh, in that way. But uh, just a couple of things. I, I, don't have, I don't have images. I was going to you know, show a clip, but I don't have time. Um, but just if you, I encourage you to watch it and just be attentive to it when you watch it. it that it's um, it's place based, uh, but it's off the beaten track. Uh, it entails encounters of uh, of rich people with poor people, of uh, of uh, urbane people with village people, not not YMCA, <laughs> but, but uh, people in a, in, a, in a village. Um, uh, there there is serious sin uh, uh, depicted, serious suffering, serious sacrifice, serious love. Um, the, the, there's sort of, I want to say there are three people who uh, really emerge as Christ figures uh, in, in the movie, and one is the, one is the character Babette, and the other uh, are a pair of sisters uh, uh, who are, um, uh, Babette is a, Babette is a, um, uh, an exile, a, a Parisian in exile, um, and the pietist sisters uh, are uh, the, the, sort of from a pietist Lutheran 
uh, sect in a little village uh, on the Danish coast um, where they, you know, they live among a very small congregation uh, and, and minister to them um, after their father, who was the pastor, died. Anyway, um, and then, but the, the, the thrust of the movie I want to suggest without giving too much away is that uh, as, as it moves through the, the movie and the misunderstandings that are, that are taking place in the course of the movie and, the, um, and really the, the uh, um, what do I say, the, the heavenly banquet uh, that, that actually uh, happens at the end, this, this small pietist community uh, really becomes the church not in the way that, that pietists generally think of themselves or Baptists think of, of themselves as the church, but sacramentally, they, were, uh, they, they became the church in this. Anyway, so, so that's, I, I recommend that. Um, now, the, the, uh, the last thing that I want to do, just because yesterday I had a conversation, um, and I realized that there are some people here from Chicago, and I realized that there are some, um, there, you, some of you may have questions um, in terms of, like, when I talk about um, uh, cities being related in an, in a, to a landscape uh, in an Aristotelian way at the scale of a metropolis as opposed to the scale of a, of a Greek polis, what that might look like. And I can't say, it doesn't look the same everywhere, but I can say that this project that, I, that I'll show you very briefly called Our Lady's Plan of Chicago 2109 um, <laughs> um, uh, is an effort to depict that um, but it's not, it's not utopian in a modernist sense. It's utopian, I want to say, in a classical humanist sense because it doesn't, it doesn't start as modernist utopias typically did, which is, I mean, there's a relationship between the modernist utopian ideal and the a practice you may have heard of or may have witnessed uh, its effects uh, dating from the mid-60s or from the early 60s called urban renewal, uh, where urban renewal was... Um, um, federal policy, they would, the federal government would give, um, would give uh, cities money to clear off, you know, whole blocks of buildings, of, of existing buildings, uh, to, you know, in, in the, with the intent that they would be rebuilt as modernist, modernist things. It was sort of a utopian. They were, and, and it was always justified as clearance of slums, but really, they were, you know, more often than they were clearing slums, they were clearing neighborhoods. Um, and slums, slums and neighborhoods aren't like so far apart. They're, it's not like they don't, they're not part of the same thing um, or the same thing, I don't know. But anyway, um, uh, so um, what was I going with this? Oh, so it's not utopian in that way. So it's a, this is a, so this, it is, so I'm gonna say that it's, it's utopian and aspirationally sacramental um, in the way that I've been talking about classical humanist urbanism. Um, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't begin by clearing out you know what's there, so it 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 begins as all historical projects do in media res. It begins in the middle of the thing, and the thing that um, that the that Chicago twenty one oh nine is in the middle of um, is the the plan of Chicago from nineteen oh nine, the the present day. This was sort of conceived in like twenty eleven, uh, and, and so the project itself. This is not. Um, I think you'll see even just in the 15 slides or so that I showed, it's a fairly complicated, complex set of issues that we're trying to deal with. Um, urbanism, agriculture, land use, uh, water at the scale of a metropolitan region of 4,000 square miles. Um, it's not the kind of thing that um, um, rookie urban designers can do. It's not the kind of thing that any one semester-long studio can do. This is the work of um, probably half a dozen studios plus um, some alumni 
of, of the program who have continued to be involved with it. And it's, it's sporadic. So it's, it's, it started in the fall. Of, uh, it actually started almost 10 years ago. But it, you know, it's probably about five or six years of work um, that's, that's represented in it. But the, the, the reference to 2109 is that's, that's the bicentennial of the Burnham plan. Right. Uh, and so um, the, um, and the Burnham plan is significant for Notre Dame, or at least my argument was that the Burnham plan should be significant for Notre Dame because it was um, really the first, arguably the best, maybe the only attempt to address the issues of rapid urban growth in, in an industrial era uh, by trying to address those issues with the classical humanist um, architectural and urban design sensibility. Um, that all of the, I mean, in other words, the problems that Chicago had, the, the challenges that Chicago, because Chicago was wealthy, but it was growing so rapidly between 1880 you know, and you know, even just by, just by 1910, which, you know, um, when, when Burnham published this, 1909, um, that um, it, uh, uh, it, what was happening in Chicago is happening all over the world today. And so the, kind of the question is, well, at Notre Dame, we're a classical humanist, supposedly a classical humanist architectural program. What do we really have to say about these kinds of issues uh, in the world today? Well, let's look, at the, let's look at Chicago. Let's look at the Burnham Plan. Let's take this as an opportunity to critique both the city of Chicago as it exists now, uh, to take the plan of Chicago, the 1909 document, as an authoritative reference point um, corrected, uh, and uh, and then project the city of Chicago, the metropolitan region, uh, forward uh, to the bicentennial. So another almost 100 years then, but 90 years now um, forward. So that was the that was that was the ambition, and uh, that was the the, the motivating um, idea behind it. So the plan of Chicago. Uh, these are images from the plan of Chicago in 1909. You can see on the on the left. The, the scale of it, the, I mean, the, the big concentration of orange is the city of Chicago, but everything around it are the, um, the metropolitan region. And, um, uh, and then you can see these iconic images of, of downtown Chicago. One of the things about it, by the way, I mean, you have, I think you have to understand the Burnham Plan as being an effort to civilize the commercial chaos, um, or the organized chaos of, of Chicago. Chicago was all about commerce, and Burnham wanted to interject a kind of countervailing force and interestingly, the, the project itself was, was uh, sponsored by the Commercial Club of Chicago. It was not sponsored by a city planning agency. It was, it was sponsored by a private organization and, um, uh, with commercial interests. And, and Burnham recognized that commercial interests were part of a city, but it wasn't all that a city was. And so he wanted to establish, in particular, a civic presence, a formal civic presence, which he did uh, in the two images on the right, in particular, uh, that showed the lakefront uh, you know the, the the sculpting of the lakefront, but also show the city hall uh, on this east-west axis, right? So that the image on the right uh, north is more or less up, but the two images on the I'm sorry, the image on the left uh, north is up, and and on the right uh, west is up, right? So um, so there's this city hall um, that's located uh, at Congress and Halstead that becomes a new focal point for the civic life in Chicago, um, uh, not in but not far from, but not in the loop, right? So he's trying to kind of create a counter, counterbalancing force between civil society and, uh, and commerce in Chicago. But there's nothing in it about sacred order, right? Except the sort of the view, uh, the view in the other direction toward the lake. So it's a kind of, you know, ethereal nature, uh, nature romanticism 
uh, looking to the West. So one of the things one of the things we wanted to do was address that. That's all. So I won't go. I won't reiterate the 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 uh, understanding of human nature and principles of Catholic social teaching that we've discussed that inform it. And th so this is. I found the, the shark image of the mergers and acquisitions uh, as as part of the hypermodern global city. Um, but this is the. But this is what we're, this is our assessment of Chicago today. Um, uh, the symbolic content of Chicago is the the order of modern capital um, in the loop, and as the loop is expanding uh, in terms of, of, of high rises and and usually speculative high rises, they're not not even high rises that are built specifically for uh, corporations. So, Burnham's famous for the epigram: uh, "Make no little plans." They have not the power to move men's and uh, not to, to move men's hearts or minds or something like that. And the problem with that is is that every megalomaniacal modernist project since Daniel Burnham uses that quote uh, and, and uh, as a justification for, for making some really bad um, um, bad urban design intervention. So, so this, is, this is my imagination of what Daniel Burnham would recommend from Purgatory. Um, make no bad plans. Rather, make good plans. Big ones? Yes, but with lots of room for communal and individual actors. So we've seen this image of... Uh, uh, you know, of icons of classical humanist urbanism. So uh, this is the project overview um, where the, I think that the key thing is to, and, and this was sort of unexpected. This has to do a little bit with land use. Um, uh, it has a lot to do with land use. But the image on the upper left is an image where the, the orange represents uh, the built-up areas. And that's what Chicago looked like, metropolitan Chicago, seven counties, in 1936 in the upper left. In 2009, in the middle one, that's what it looked like in 2009 and today. And on the upper right is what, what we're imagining it would look like, it could look like in 2109. And you can see instantly that one of the things, um, uh, well, one is that it's, it's similar, right, in its um, sort of organizational patterns to the, to the 1930s, to the pre-1945 um, landscape. And you can see that compared to the one in the center, um, a lot of agricultural and natural landscape is recaptured, right? So that, that what are now automobile suburbs, because automobile suburbs are what filled in those areas in between those lines um, after, after 1945 up to, up to the present day. And so uh, what we're imagining is that, is that you actually, uh, this actually recaptures, we're, we're, and we're assuming a similar, similar population uh, in the metropolitan region. And that this uh, actually recaptures about 70% of the landscape that is covered in the, the middle, the top middle drawing. Um, and there's a little depiction of, of, uh, on the bottom of, the, um, uh, of a perspective looking west uh, on the left of the existing condition, on the right um, suggesting the, the beginnings of the, um, of the 2109 condition. It depends a lot upon, uh, this is a kind of transect of, of settlement types. Um, where uh, you go from hamlet to village to town to city, where each, each, each type increases in density and increases in maximum area. Um, so uh, what happens is that the city, neighborhood, and the town, the two most dense, are organized around existing rail lines and existing public transportation in both the city of Chicago and uh, in, in the, you know, the, the rail suburbs, and that hamlets and villages are rural they are, they are urban, they're small urban settlements in a, in a rural landscape. And so uh, actually, let's see. So it, you know, if you're looking at the upper right and you see sort of the, the fingers that run out from the center, 
that, that actually connect to three perimeter cities, smaller cities. But then in between the rail lines, there are these little dots. Those little dots are hamlets and villages. And everything else that's depicted is, is either a city um, or, um, or mostly um, rail suburb. Um, so the, that land use pattern is dictated by existing and slightly supplemented um, rail uh, traffic. Uh, um, the, all, of the, all of the freeways, all the interstates are kept uh, in the region except for the ones that go uh, through the city. And I'll show you that in a minute. This is a diagram of, uh, I can't go into it, but uh, Chicago has tremendous water, wastewater flooding problems and has done amazingly, uh, amazing feats of engineering that probably crossed the line over hubris uh, that have exacerbated the problem. And so um, we're, we're, we're proposing to use the system that's in place, but also to sort of decentralize the way that wastewater is treated. Um, in this, um, in sort of in accordance with the land use, follows from the land use policies. Um, this is the intercity, interstate, intercity, in-city interstate rights-of-way. I think somebody asked me, somebody asked me a question about that sometime? Anyway, um, you can see on the right, uh, the, the sort of the yellow perimeter thing is, uh, lines around it are the, are the um, uh, interstate uh, highways uh, outside the city limits of Chicago. In green are the, are the interstates inside the city limits of Chicago. And the, the proposal is to repurpose those as multi-use urban corridors. So they cease to become interstate highways. And they start to look like the things that are on the left in, in, in the section uh, for, for multiple uses. And so this is the difference in land use that you get um, between um, what it is in 2009 on the left and what it's proposed for 2009 on the right. Uh, I, uh, so we, we figured out all kinds of things about the, the density, uh, population density in the, town, in, the, in the hamlets, the villages, the towns, and the cities. Um, and I don't have time to talk about it here. But um, the, uh, in the same way, the landscape, um, on, so in the city of Chicago on the left is the, is the depiction of uh, open land in the city of Chicago. So Chicago is 231 square miles, of which 222 square miles are occupied currently in the 2109 proposal where the landscape comes in uh, in relationship to the proximity of building to public transportation, right? What you wind up with is the 231 square miles of Chicago uh, is only occupied by 166 square miles of building. So you're recovering, um, what, 34, 22, 50, 56 square miles uh, of landscape within the city of Chicago. Um, there were precursor ideas. I realized this uh, just this semester. Uh, there was a, a movement uh, in the early, uh, late 19th, early 20th century called the Garden City Movement, uh, which had to do with polycentric cities uh, with landscape in between them. Uh, and of course, this is an idealized version of that. Ebenezer Howard is the, is the person who, and interesting, Ebenezer, Power, Ebenezer Howard, um, you know, the, it was the idea, it was an ideal city model, but it was, um, uh, what do I say, it was, it was polycentric. Uh, and uh, the economics were economics of cooperative ownership. Interestingly, Ebenezer Howard was a Georgist. He had Georgist assumptions about land. And the goal uh, was to produce relatively economically independent cities with short commute times and the preservation of the countryside. And it turns out that that's kind of what we're doing um, in, the, you know, in the Burnham plan. It's just it's not in this ideal form. It's actually using the, the existing um, infrastructure. These are, these are all the different building types. Building types are what you make cities and city blocks out of and urban space. 
Um, you've seen this slide with respect to density. So somebody asked a question about um, the um, uh, historic preservation. Right? So here's this image on the left of Chicago's historic center viewed from the southwest and all the buildings. And, and then what we're imagining it to be to look like in 2109 on the right. And you can see far fewer high-rise buildings. Um, and, um, you know, just, and just to say, we, we do not propose to demolish anything. The students did not propose to demolish anything. What we were imagining, uh, the tall buildings remaining, that what they are, they are the buildings that are uh, designated as historic landmarks and or are uh, lovable and durable enough to be maintained. Um, that we just we think that the other buildings are insufficiently lovable and insufficiently durable to last uh, another 90 years, and that's what's depicted um, in this uh, in this skyline. Um, sacred order, and I guess a gosh, I guess I have to talk about sacred order, right? So Burnham <laughs> Burnham doesn't have a representation of that in the so yeah. So we, we so we have you know, we have to cover all these mundane things before we can talk about sacred order today's world. Uh, probably not in this audience. I should have done this, done this first. But um, So in the east-west direction, so on the left, uh, uh, north is up, and in the east-west direction, that's the civic axis that Burnham um, inscribed uh, on Chicago in 1909 that located a city hall and uh, oriented toward the, toward the lakefront. Um, so ran from city hall to the, to the lakefront. There was, no, uh, there was no sacred axis. Um, our proposal is to in, on that stretch of interstate highway that um, is being filled, we're proposing to establish a north-south sacred axis, so there's a sacred cross axis, um, that is fronted by um, representative religious buildings uh, uh, you know, of communities in the city of Chicago. Not, it's not a whole you know, mile-long boulevard of religious buildings, but they're located you know, on, on each block. Uh, and and it, it's just it's it's part of a neighborhood, but it's a pretty it, you know so it's Columbian Exposition Boulevard is the sort of the the, the proposed title of it. So but it, it becomes you know part of the part of the symbolic center of Chicago. So these are the kinds of buildings that, um, and and along it's the the axis runs you know from the big park on the on the south to the big park on the north. Um, the city hall is the is the, the you know the big building on the on the north at the upper end of the of the site. And so City Hall is the dominant single building, but the, the sacred axis is uh, multiple religious buildings. So there's a, um, uh, uh, none of which are, are on axis um, with anything, but they front this important, this important boulevard. And so it, there's a nod to um, American traditions of um, uh, um, non-establishment and free exercise of religion. And that is a kind of liberal presupposition. We can talk about that. I mean, that's, I think that's an interesting issue to talk about. Um, um, but that's that that was that was what uh, uh, is, that's that's the sense of civic and religious relationship that that's informed by representation of sacred axis that informs this project. So this is what it looks like in an aerial view from the south um, east. And so it's a you know it's a cruciform. Uh, you can see the 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 um, uh, the high-rise um, um, city hall and and the civic the religious buildings along the sacred axis running north and south and I think this is the final slide no this so this is this is that view looking to the east uh, again where um, uh, 
Uh, you can see the, the tall buildings in the loop a little bit left of center. You can see the, the civic axis that runs uh, from the city hall to the lake. You can see the cross axis of the sacred axis, um, and that's on the lakefront. You can see some of the high rises that, that remain. Um, I was going to show this because there's some people here who've lived in Hyde Park. Um, this is for the urbanization of, of Hyde Park. Um, um, not, not, not of Hyde Park, the urbanization of the Midway Plaisance. So on the left are existing conditions. On the right are proposed conditions. Um, we relocated the Obama Center. It, that, that's really schematic. We wouldn't do that. But, um, but the, the um, uh, and then looking, uh, again, uh, existing conditions on the left and proposed conditions on the right. So on the left, it's looking uh, south. I'm sorry, in the top register, it's looking south toward Woodlawn, uh, both existing and proposed. And on the bottom, it's looking north toward the university and toward the loop, University of Chicago, and toward the loop, uh, existing and proposed. And then this is a view from the, from the west, looking east. This is the existing condition, uh, and this is the proposed condition. Um, so um, yeah, too long. Again, sorry. <laughs>